Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Surma Pod. This is the podcast for the Sports and Entertainment Risk Management Alliance. I am the founder and CEO of Surma, Rich Lankov. I am also the host of the Surma Pod, and we've got uh, a great discussion today. I know it will be amazing. We're discussing uh, NIL deals as they relate to uh, foreign athletes, a really interesting topic that we haven't seen before. We've got a couple of folks uh, with you who have covered this issue First, we've got Christy Dosh. Her website is christydosh.com. She is known as the Sports Biz Miss. Did I get that right, Christy? You did, yep. <laughs> Sports Biz Miss. She is a contributor for Forbes. You've seen her on lots of media outlets, including ESPN, CNN, Washington Post, some others. And she is also the founder of the Business of College Sports and the Business of College Sports podcast. Christy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And uh, former Business of College Sports intern and now law clerk for Winter Tremaco. Uh, It's Madeline's writing on this subject that I first uh, read about and was interested in this topic. So Madeline Myers, also welcome to the Sermapod. Thank you so much for having me. We know you just came off off the bar exam a few days ago. You're a graduate of Case Western (laughs) University uh, Law School. So you've got that. I glow about you as someone who's got this <laughs> big deal right behind her. Yes, the post-bar glow. I'm Absolutely. loving it. Well, all right. So we're talking today. We've covered on the Sermon Pod before, and obviously the uh, name, image, and likeness issue is huge and getting bigger across the sports uh, landscape. Um, but you have covered this issue as it relates to foreign student-athletes, right? So let's talk first about sort of the basics. What's a student visa? How does someone uh, from a foreign country come to uh, school in this country and also in the the United States and also uh, avail themselves of scholarships and ultimately NIL deals? uh, Christy, you want to start with that? I was going to let Madeline start. (laughs) So explain that. What's a student visa? I actually, coming from Canada, had a student visa way back in the day, but what's a student visa? Yeah, so students do not come into the United States automatically eligible to earn money. And so an international student needs to be in work authorized status to be able to work and earn income. So a student visa puts a student in that status to work and earn that income. Now, is that something that is um, generally widely given to any student who wants to come here? Is there a process for that or how does that work? There's an application process. Um, Yes, you usually um, will do it through uh, your school, your international office. And, um, you know, we recommend, you know, that would be just to go through. Okay. Generally, if you've been offered a scholarship, then your school will help you through that process of filling out your visa application and hopefully getting that student visa, the F1 visa, to be able to attend school here in the U.S. on your sports scholarship. I know there's also from your article uh, something called a P1 and a, is it an O1 visa? What are those? Yeah, so these visas, uh, so for a P1 visa, it requires that an athlete have a contract with a major league sports team. 
Um, the major sports teams must be in a league sport where you have combined revenues of 10 million and at least six teams. Um, and then O one visas are visas that are typically given to athletes who are at the top of their specific sport. Uh, priority is given to those with extraordinary talent and it can be easier for athletes in some sports over others to get these O one visas. Um, so a way that I remember a P1 versus an O1 visa is P1 visas are typically given to athletes who are on professional teams, um, whereas O1 visas are given to athletes who are outstanding or Olympic athletes who are you know, at the top of their field. All right, so we'll get into that in a moment, but just backtracking, um, does... Any student visa allow the student to work? I'm talking about non-student athletes. If you come here from another country uh, and you go to school here and you want to work, you know, a, a job, you might want to work, let's say, as a bartender, as a waiter or whatever, whatever job, are you allowed to work on a traditional student visa? No. So a traditional student visa really limits your ability to work to work that would be related to your major. It's essentially allowing you to do internship kind of work in order to prepare yourself for what you want to do after graduation, but really stringent rules around how you can work and earn money if you're on that student visa, which is sort of why we have an issue with international student athletes trying to earn on NIL. So. International student athletes have this carve out for these specific type of visas that allow them to work. And traditionally, before NILs, what was the type of work that these student athletes were engaged in? I know some of the, the student athletes I, I've talked to who have been on student visas uh, who are here internationally have been able to, say, work for Nike if they're a sports marketing major. Um, sometimes they can help their own school put on camps and clinics if that relates to their major. So it's very limited in that you've got to show that connection between their major and the work that they're going to be doing. And then there's some on-campus work that's allowed, say, working in a, a library or a dining hall, that sort of thing. Does that differ from an internship, a traditional internship that uh, students can avail themselves of? Well, an, an international student athlete, that internship would have to be proven to be sort of intricately tied to their major. Um, and I think that's where some of the issue has come up with international student athletes because they're wanting to do things, say they want to do something with Nike as an NIL deal, but it might end up being classified as work under visa standards if they're a mathematics major and what they're doing with Nike is advertising a new shoe. You know, how do you tie that to your math major? I see. So what's what's the official position of the NCAA on this when it comes to student athletes who are trying to uh, sign NIL deals? Because I know that's a relatively new phenomenon for all student athletes, but have they given any direction as it relates to foreign students? The NCAA has not provided any restrictions on um, NIL for international athletes. The guidance has primarily come from immigration law and NIL regulations, which are primarily state-based. So okay. there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen when it comes to this issue. Right. right. Um, I also learned from your excellent article about active versus passive income generating activity. 
might have mentioned this a little bit already, but can you sort of explain to our listeners and our viewers what that means? Yes. So there is a consensus within the immigration community that most NIL activities are active instead of passive under the definition of immigration law. So an example of passive income would be where a student licenses their NIL to a trading card company, but lets the company do the rest. So they can't talk about it. They can't promote it. They can't touch it. All they can do is just sign it and that's it. They can just sign over their rights. It's just a contract and that's it. Um, on our previous podcast um, that was the basis of that article, an attorney pointed out that she's advised clients that if they have a U.S. work authorized social media manager, that person can post on the international athlete social media page without any issues. However, if the international athlete, you know, poses in the photo or puts together the the content for the caption, um, that crosses a line and the activity is no longer passive. It becomes active income generating. And so the attorney's caution that, you know, when you get in front of a consular officer, you need to be able to prove who pressed that button, uh, who pressed post, um, which can be difficult to pr prove when it comes to social media, just given how um, widely accessible it is. You know, you only have 90 seconds to make your case. So if it's tricky, you know, that can be that can cause issues. So it's important to, you know, have very clear lines when it comes um, to passive versus active income generating activities. And what about group license? Group licensing? What what is that? Is that active or passive? Yeah. So group licensing is where an outside company wants to work with a group of student athletes who are willing to sign over their rights. And so, if they do any more than that, it becomes problematic. So. Like I just um, discussed, um, so if they, as long as they don't touch it and they don't, you know, post about it or they don't, you know, prepare materials for it, um, then it's considered passive. But traditionally, it's been considered more of an active income generating activity. And so it's important to analyze every deal on its individual terms to determine, you know, what the obligations are of the individual athlete versus, or, or the team athletes under the deal that go beyond, you know, just signing over your rights. Um, and because that can affect your visa. And I think we've seen a couple of good examples of how you can do this safely as an international student athlete. So like trading cards are a good example. If all you're doing as the international student athlete is licensing your name, image, and likeness to the group licensing company and to the trading card company, and they're producing a trading card and you're getting paid based on people purchasing that trading card, but you don't tweet it, you don't retweet the trading card company tweeting about it. I mean, you cannot talk about it or really acknowledge it publicly as the international student athlete, because as soon as you do, that promotion of it would be considered work. So you can sign over your rights as long as it's the trading card, trading card company doing all the promotion. And same thing for like a jersey. If they wanted to produce a jersey with your number, that's fine. And they can compensate you for the ones that are sold. But you, the international athlete, cannot promote it or you cross over into the definition of work under immigration law. I see. 
what effect does it have um, on how the student athlete gets paid and where they get paid? What's what's the relevance there, if any? So on our previous podcast, we discussed this issue as well. And they, um, the attorney there mentioned that any services that are rendered in the United States, regardless of if you're paid uh, inside or outside of the U.S., if you're rendering services in the United States that are considered work and something that you would be compensated for, it's considered work. Um, and you need authorization to be able to do it. Um, there, you know, the attorneys did suggest that, you know, a student athlete could do something, you know, on summer or winter break, but that work would have to end before school starts. And it would also depend on where you are uh, when doing that work. Yeah. So like, for example, I got pitched a story by an agent and he had an international student athlete. And the the story was that the student athlete was going to do this promotion work on behalf of the agency, but they were going to pay him in his bank account in his home country. And I, I emailed the agent back and I said, I don't think that works. I don't think he can do the promotion while he's in the U.S. and it's just okay because you're paying him at home in his home bank account in Germany or wherever he was from. And sure enough, I kind of ran it up the flagpole with some other attorneys that I knew and I talked to the compliance office at his school and you can't do that. Now, if the agent wanted to wait till the student athlete was home for Christmas and have him do stuff while he was home in Germany, then fine. But he can't perform the, the work part of it while he's in the United States, no matter where you pay him. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, the, is the scenario different? Is, your, is the analysis different if the international student athlete donates their earnings rather than keeps it? Yeah, so um, in order to be able to donate money, a student has to have title to the money. And so the moment they acquire title to the money, if it's on the basis of them doing something, and the student is being compensated for their work, regardless if the title is ultimately given to the charity. If you're being compensated, um, if you're given title for work that you've done, you're being compensated, and so it doesn't. Um, so it doesn't necessarily change the situation. Got it. And and does it matter what kind of sport is involved? I mean, there's obviously some higher revenue generating sports on campus than others um and naturally you know a lot of the nil deals are for the more popular sports but um the sport in and of themselves is that is that relevant there are certain sports that have been um, more successful in getting p1 and o1 visas um depending on the setting so in um in individual sports track and field swimming and gymnastics have been more successful in getting visas and then on the team side, um, college athletes who play baseball, football, and basketball have been more successful in getting visas. Well, just to sort of drive that point home, because, you know, although I'm an attorney, immigration law was not my area of practice when NIL started. And so I've learned a lot from the immigration attorneys that I've talked to. And we've seen some student athletes now trying to get those P1s or the O1s, or even there's a sort of an entrepreneurship type of visa, uh, because once you're under one of those, instead of the student visa, you can work. So you can do NIL deals without restriction if you get one of those other visas. So that's why it would be so important if you thought you had the earning potential to try to get that P1 or O1 or another type of visa that would allow you to work while you're here in the U.S. 
We talked earlier about the application. How long does it generally take to get a student visa? So it takes a couple of weeks to a couple of months. Um, right now, the immigration office has said that they're a bit behind. So they said to predict 11 to 12 months. But I mean, I'm somewhat, I'm a planner. So I would recommend, you know, probably plan for the process to take longer um, just to make sure you put yourself in the best situation possible. And Chris, I know a lot of the discussion in the NIL area recently, and there's a lot of legislation out there to modify those rules, is to, it deals with the inability of student athletes to really work with agents or lawyers uh, on these deals. I think there's a prohibition about using the on-campus legal services. Um, how is a international student athlete supposed to navigate these very complicated waters on their own, right, without adequate representation? They must have, I mean, the NCAA must be, have thought of that? Is there any any guidance to give them? I mean, aside from yeah. the schools, you know, uh, are they able to hire anyone? Yeah, it's, it's been a little complicated in that the NCAA has said that they are free to go out and hire any sort of assistance that they want and spend money on it. So if they want to go to a, a third-party attorney and hire them uh, to pursue one of these other visas, they are free to do that. Where some of the issues have come is in trying to get someone from the athletic department or someone from the international office on campus to give advice. And they don't want those folks giving legal advice and opening the institution to liability. And then separately from that, we had some law schools that were forming legal clinics in order to help not just international student athletes, but also to help uh, other athletes with contracts and trademarks and that sort of thing. And what the NCAA has said is you can do that, but you must open up those services to all students at the school. You can't open it only to athletes. But for international student athletes, the advice that I've heard from immigration attorneys who are working with them is if you think you have earning potential of at least $10,000, then it's probably worth it to hire an immigration attorney and look into getting one of these other types of visas. But if it's going to be smaller than that, then it's probably not worth the expense you would go to uh, with an immigration attorney to pursue those avenues. Interesting. Um, last question I had here on the Sermon Pod is, do you have any sense, I mean, is your research or your interviews resulted in any sense of how lucrative the market here is for NIL deals for international student athletes versus their home country? Now, presumably, many of them wouldn't be coming if there wasn't, you know, a market for their skills, in particular the NILs. But I'm thinking of, you know, there are some countries in Europe that value some sports way more than the United States. And presumably there's more money there than there is here for something like, I don't know, figure skating or ice hockey, for example, or even track and field, right? Not very popular here, but very popular in some other countries. So any sense of whether there are markets in other countries for this and are there rules allowing student athletes to get paid in, in other countries? I, you know, I don't know if you know that or if, if you've come across that answer, but um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, as far as I've heard, student athletes have had no trouble doing deals in their own countries, and a lot of them have taken advantage of summers and holiday breaks. In fact, I worked with a fencer uh, last school year during a program I was coaching in, and she was like racking up deals to go home over Christmas break and execute while she was home for Christmas break. And she really didn't focus on trying to get anything while she was here in the US. She just felt like when she was here, she was going to focus on school and her sport. But then when she went home for Christmas, she could knock out a bunch of brand deals and make a little money. So uh, I, I've heard of quite a few student athletes who are taking advantage of that. And 
some that are taking advantage of opportunities to be outside of the country for tournaments. So we've seen basketball games played in the Bahamas and that sort of thing. And that opens sort of a whole new can of worms about working in other countries uh, and what their work visa status is and what you can can and can't do in these other countries. Uh, but I know student athletes are trying to get creative with it. The fencing market hasn't caught up yet to uh, some of the athletes, <laughs> but but pretty soon I'll be racking up those deals here as well. Christy Dosh from ChristyDosh.com and the business of college sports. Thank you so much. And Madeline Myers, uh, soon to be taking over the world once she gets her license, which is inevitable here in a few months. Thank you so much for your excellent work on the subject, the great article, the great podcast, which they can all find at ChristyDosh.com. Yes. Uh, yeah, they can find the podcast is probably a little easier to find on businessofcollegesports.com. Got it. Check that out. And uh, thank you both so much. And we'll see you next time on the Sermapod. Thanks. Thank you. Ideas, strategies, and opinions represented on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not represent the ideas, strategies, and opinions of their employers.